Our preaching passage tonight is from the book of Titus, continuing our series in the book of Titus, chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. Titus 3, 1 to 2. It says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray one more time together before we dive in. God, thank you for the book of Titus and how it teaches, instructs, trains us to know how to live in a way that honors you and pleases We dive into these two verses right now. Would you please open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. Please give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are soft. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, March Madness is going on right now, but it was during... The NCAA March Madness Tournament back in 2008 that a basketball star was born. You may remember that year because it was the year that Steph Curry led Davidson College to the Elite Eight of that year's men's championship. Perhaps his coach and teammates knew that there was greatness inside of him, but that year, 2008, was the year that the world was put on notice that Steph Curry was a unique and even a transcendent basketball talent. And even now, after playing for years in the NBA, he's won multiple world championships, multiple MVP awards, and he's in many ways one of the greatest and most unique basketball players of all time. Very influential. And his identity and his influence as a transcendent athlete may have started alone in the gym, but it widened that year at the March Madness Tournament in 2008, and now his influence has gone far and wide around the country, even around the world. What was inside of him is now seen by all. In his letter to the young pastor, Titus, the Apostle Paul is urging Titus to lead the church in Crete, where Titus was, in a way that people know and live out the truth of the gospel, a knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, good works, living out the gospel. And over the course of the letter, the the scope of influence that the gospel has in people's lives is supposed to, that influence that is supposed to have in people's lives keeps on widening as the letter continues. Because of course the gospel can't just be lived out in a certain subset of Christian community, or even just in a family or a household, but it has to take root in the way that we live in the public sphere. And that's what our text for this evening addresses, life in the public sphere. Because Christians, of course, live in a world that is not all Christian. How are we supposed to live in a society that doesn't all follow the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
how are believers supposed to relate to an unbelieving world? How to act in our society, treat people who don't share our values? These are some of the questions this text addresses. How grace goes public. How to relate to government and society would have been a really pressing question for the Christians in Crete where Titus is doing, was doing ministry. We get a sense of what that environment would have been like in chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, to give really particular examples. There, there were people that were insubordinate, that were deceptive, they were teaching things for false gain, and we see really in verse 12 something particularly shocking. It says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Wow. What's more, there were people who were devoting themselves to myths that aren't true. In verse 16, Paul kind of sums up the situation. He says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. It's a rough picture. How are Christians supposed to live in a society like that? In that sort of society, the Christians needed a reminder. They needed to be reminded about how to live in such a way that their lives are shaped by the gospel and witnesses to the gospel. To live in a way that is distinctly gospel-centered. How are believers supposed to live in a society like that? Well, that's what this text is, in part, trying to answer. That's why Paul wrote this letter to the young pastor Titus. To instruct him how he should teach and lead the shepherd, this church in Crete, so that it could thrive and fulfill its mission. And so throughout the letter, there's a zeroed-in focus on how the gospel leads God's people into good works. Clearly, there was a lack of that in Crete. saw that in those verses in chapter 1. And so this letter urges Titus to teach the Christians there. Paul puts it this way in chapter 1, verse 1. A knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. How the gospel calls Christians into a life full of good works. And so in chapter 1, Paul speaks specifically to church, about church leadership. He calls Titus to appoint faithful men as elders of the church, men who live out the gospel in sharp contrast with the standard MO of the, the, the Cretans who were lazy, insubordinate, unfit for any good work. The, the leadership in the church is supposed to live different. But then in chapter 2, Paul widens the focus He widens the scope from just church leadership to the household, to the family. Older men, younger men, older women, younger women, even slaves. Paul is widening the scope. And the reason? He says it in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Men, women, slave, free, all who accept Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord, are saved from their sins. There's salvation in the name of Jesus. But those who are saved by the grace of God are then trained by the grace of God. We heard powerfully from Pastor Ben last week about how the grace of God trains us 
to become people who are zealous for good works, who are ready for that in our lives and excited about living out our salvation, that gospel in our lives. And so chapter 1 focuses on church leadership. Chapter 2 widens the scope to include the household and the family. And now as we enter chapter 3, Paul widens the scope yet again. The knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness, this way of living that accepts the grace of God and lives in light of it is not just for church leaders. It's not just for living within our Christian households. The scope is wide. The grace of God that saves is the grace of God that trains, and that grace is to be on public display for all to see. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 talk about the Christian's relationship to the government and even to all people. It's a wide scope. So the gospel's not simply to be lived out for me personally and not even in community with other Christians alone. It's God's grace is not just for me or for us. The life that has been saved and trained by the grace of God goes public. So this text shows us that for the Christian, the gospel must be lived out even in the public sphere of our lives. These two verses are very practical. They get right down to the brass tacks of what it looks like to live out the gospel in the public sphere of our lives. And the entirety of these two verses is one short sentence with seven succinct statements that that show us how the gospel is supposed to be lived out in the public sphere. There are two main things it calls us to do. First, how we're supposed to relate to the government. We see this primarily in verse 1, and then second, and even more broadly, we're, we're, we're supposed to relate to all people in society in certain ways. And this is primarily in verse 2. So there's government and all people. For the Christian, the gospel must be lived out even in the public sphere. Grace goes public. So first, we see government. We're to submit to the rulers and authorities that govern us. Verse 1 says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. There are these three to-be statements in this verse. To be submissive, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So there's these three to-be statements that have one object. The rulers and the authorities. And so these three statements are linked to that object, the rulers and authorities, being submissive, obedient, ready for every good work. It falls under the government. When it comes to the way that Christians are supposed to relate to the government they sit under, Paul's really clear about what what Titus is supposed to teach. (laughs) Be submissive. It gets at both the actions and the attitudes that we have about being subject to the authorities that God has put in our lives. Submission includes both practice and posture of the heart. But also being obedient. Really, it's, it's a contrast to being disobedient, like we, we saw of so many of the Cretans in, in chapter 1. This brings into focus our, our civic duty that we have and, and the right kind of actions that we're supposed to have, paying taxes, following laws, being obedient. But then the third of these to-be statements is, is the most far-reaching, to be ready for every good work. It's not just doing what we have to do, getting it over with, 
It's being on the lookout for whatever good we can do in our society. Paul's certainly making a contrast with that standard MO in Crete. These teachers there who professed to know God but were unfit for any good work. Christians are supposed to be different. The call for the Christians to have a, a discernibly spirit-filled way of living toward the authorities in the society around them. It's, it's a distinctly different way of operating. Rather than being disobedient, being obedient. Rather than being unfit for good work, being ready for every good work. A knowledge of the truth which accords with godly living. Paul's desire wasn't simply for Christians to live in a relationship with their government nicely enough so that they get along and they don't have too many problems with their government or something like that. No, no, that's not what Paul's getting at. What he wants the Christians in Crete to do is that he wants them who have been saved by the grace of God, who are being trained by the grace of God, as those Christians live out the grace of God in their society, they are working redemption and recounting their witness to the community they're in. Salt and light, ready for every good work. That's the call of this text in relation to the authorities in our society. Something I enjoy watching is, is soccer. Um, I follow the Premier League um, and watch a lot of the matches, or sh- I should say football, I guess it is, over there. But um, to me, at least, one of the most interesting parts of the match is, is when substitutes get put in. Usually, substitutes get put in right around the 60th, 65th, 70th minute of, of the 90. And, it, and it's really interesting what happens. Because in soccer, of course, when a player gets subbed out, he can't go back in the game. It's not like basketball where you can take a quick break and then get back out onto the court. In soccer, when you're subbed out, you're out for the rest of the game. And what's more, each manager in this league is only allowed three substitutions. And so each of those substitutions makes a really big difference. A substitute coming onto the field is a really critical moment, and so the manager has to be very calculated in who he puts onto the field. But if you've ever watched a soccer game on TV, something that you'll see is when a starter gets subbed out, he kind of switches off. He'll kind of walk off the field, usually slowly, maybe a little too slowly, soak in some applause, probably waste some time um, if they're winning. He's probably not very happy the manager subbed him out. (laughs) But the substitute, totally different. The substitute is ready to go, standing on the sideline, listening to the manager's instructions, ready to do them. And then as soon as it's his turn to go onto the field, he's ready to go and he sprints onto the field. And if you watch that substitute play, you'll see someone who's doing everything he can to help his team, going 110% for the rest of the game, doing whatever he can to make a difference for the team. When it comes to our government and living in our society that's run by the authorities We need to be less like the starter walking off the field and a lot more like the sub sprinting onto it. Submissive, obedient, ready for every good work. Getting practical is hard, though, isn't it? 
Because God's people, of course, all around the world live in societies and under governments that aren't perfect. Includes us, of course. Gridlock in government, political polarization, politicians who don't always seem to have the best interests of the people that they represent at heart. We probably don't agree with every politician who's in office. In local government and state government, federal government. I'm guessing we disagree with people that we didn't vote for who get elected, but we probably even disagree with a lot of the people that we did vote for who got elected, at least on some things. So it's hard when the rubber meets the road, isn't it? When we're called to submit, to obey, and to support by doing every good work, being ready for that. Well, just like Paul wanted to wanted Titus to remind churches of this teaching, we too need to be reminded of this. It's probably familiar to hear, but we need to hear it afresh. In our society, in our country, in our state, in our city, with all these ruling authorities, when we're un- all those who are under, the default setting of our hearts should be to be submissive, obedient, ready to do good. So often it's the opposite, isn't it? I want what's mine, but I'll submit if I have to. What Paul wants Titus to teach, and what we need to be reminded of, is it should be the opposite. The default setting of our hearts should be ready to obey and to do every good work. That's regardless of whether or not we voted for that president or support that governor or agree with that mayor. It can be challenging, but it's the call of this text. And that means that we should live in obedience to our governor and his leadership, whether we voted for him or not. This means we should be submissive to our president's authority and not to speak ill of him, whether we agree with him on everything or not. Of course, there are those moments when we are bound by God's higher authority to obey God and not man. That's something the Bible teaches, for sure. Submitting to the government does not take precedence over following the direct commandments of God in his word. Submission and obedience to government does not mean enduring abuse at the hands of authorities. There are certainly moments when we are bound by God's higher authority to resist the government. And and knowing the difference of when to resist and submit, it's not always easy. But the default position of our hearts should not be to resist, but to obey and be ready to do good. As God said to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, 7, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the welfare of the place that you're in exile in. Why? And pray to the Lord on its behalf. Why? For in its welfare you will find your welfare. God's grace doesn't just save us. It also trains us to be people who are zealous for good works. Not just good works within certain church circles, not just good works within groups that we're comfortable with, not just good works under governments that we really appreciate and like. Remember the situation that Paul would have been writing all his letters in. Those were governments that were not at all 
um, in agreement with Christianity, not all excited to have a church growing. No, God's grace trains us to be people who are zealous for good works under it all. Grace goes public. So verse 1 widens the scope to government, but then verse 2 widens the scope even further yet. This is to all people that this is, that our attitudes are supposed to apply. And this time, in verse 2, we have four to-be statements. They're, they're framed on, on either side by an object, the negative of no one and the positive of all people. This positive and negative, it's an all-encompassing category. The grace that saves, the grace that trains, is the grace that's to be lived out in public toward all people. We have these four ways that we're called to do this with these four to-be statements. The first is to speak evil of no one. Something that's to be avoided, not to slander people, not to insult them, not to speak ill of them toward no one. Also to be avoided is quarreling. Quarreling has this sense of fighting or brawling or rebellion. It it, it seems that there were these false teachers in Crete who were turning people away from the truth and instead creating division among the ranks. And Paul's call is he wants people to be the opposite of that. Rather than those who speak evil and quarrel, the call is to be peaceable. That's what we should aim to be. As Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. So there are two negatives, but also two positives. Titus is to remind the churches to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, but also positively to be gentle, which is to be courteous, reasonable, forbearing, building up, not tearing down. And finally, as a a summary in many ways, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That's an all-encompassing statement, surely, isn't it? (laughs) To be considerate, to, to be complete in the way that we treat other people with courtesy, to go out of our way for the good of others. But what stands out most distinctly in these four statements here is what they're bound up by. These attitudes and these actions are not directed toward just a small group of people. They're for all people. The scope is as wide as it gets. There are no catches, no easy outs. There's no qualifiers other than all people. The kind of life that is influenced by the grace of God and displays the grace of God is not just for a certain part of the church or not just for people we like and know. It's for everyone. It's for all people. It's just about time for spring break. We were talking, I was talking about this with a few of our middle schoolers this morning at our CANS gathering. Some are excited for just one more week of spring break. But during spring break, something many people do would, might be to go to an all-inclusive resort. I've never been to one, but I'm told by people who have that they're very nice. 
Um, Of course, the idea of an all-inclusive resort is that you pay the upfront fee, and then once you get in, everything's included. You get full access to anything and everything that's in the resort. You want surf and turf? You got it. You want to go to the spa? You got it. You want a round of golf? Go for it. Hot tub? Right over there. All-inclusive. For the Christian, when it comes to how the gospel of grace should be shaping the way we interact with others, there's no relationship that's off limits. The grace of God has appeared, brought salvation for all people. The gospel we believe in is all-inclusive. Perhaps there's an opportunity for you to receive the grace of God. There are no exclusions. If you think you're too far gone, you are not excluded. If you think you don't match up with what you picture Christians to be, you are not excluded. If you think you're from the wrong background, you are not excluded. The grace of God is for all. When it comes to the way that we live that out, again, it gets difficult. As I've been preparing for this message, this has been one of the most difficult parts, is thinking about how do I shine this light on my own life? Because it's a hard teaching to put into practice. When there's something this expansive, that the grace of God goes everywhere in our lives to all the far-reaching nooks and crannies of our relationships and our responsibilities, even in the public sphere of our lives, when it's all-inclusive. We have to recognize that because we're all sinners, there's something or probably lots of things in every one of our lives that needs to be reshaped and reworked and remodeled in light of God's grace. To speak evil of no one. Not anyone. Not even that friend who hasn't been too nice to you lately. Not even that neighbor who's always doing something a little weird in their yard. Not even that coworker who isn't quite pulling their weight at the job. Not even that boss who just seems to get on your nerves. Grace goes public. And to avoid quarreling. What if you were to be the one who speaks up at the family gathering or the book club or the school board meeting, but you do it in a way that doesn't fight or brawl with your words? What a witness that would be. To have people speaking passionately and with deep gospel conviction, yet unwilling to pick a fight. Grace going public. And to be gentle. Sticks and stones may break my bones, and words can hurt a lot too. Especially when they're on social media message threads on internet boards, 
how much better to be known for grace-infused language that demonstrates the gentleness of Christ. Grace going public. And to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Going out of your way to do good for others and finding creative ways to do it for all people to bless those in our city. That's grace going public. Because, of course, we don't just live this way because it's the right thing to do. Just because we're supposed to follow the rules. Just so people think well of us. No, we live this way in the public sphere of our lives because it's living out the gospel of grace that we have been shown. Look at what Paul says in verses 3 to 7 following our passage. It's the reason we live this way. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's who we were. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're called to live the same way toward others that Christ has toward us. Thank God that that is how he has treated us. Grace that saves. Grace that trains. Even grace that overflows to our city, to our country, to the world, to all people. Let's pray together. Well, God, thank you that the gra- that grace has appeared. Brings salvation for all people, even sinners like us. Thank you that that grace trains us to be zealous for good works. And thank you for the opportunity that you've even given us to live out that grace so that all might see Please help us as we seek to live for you and as witnesses to you in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.